Robert Thornton, a professor at Lehigh University, he put together some litigation-proof sentences, and he put them in a book called The Lexicon of Intentionally Ambiguous Recommendations, L-I-A-R. If you wanted to describe someone who was inept, you might say this. I enthusiastically recommend this candidate with no qualifications whatsoever. To describe an ex-employee who had problems getting along with someone else, you could say this. I am pleased to say that this candidate is a former colleague of mine. I know, it's Monday. (laughs) To describe an unproductive candidate, You might say this, I can assure you that no person would be better for the job. Okay, see? To describe an applicant not worth consideration, you could say this, I would urge you to waste no time in making this candidate an offer of employment. L-I-A-R. Today we're not going to look at overt lies, but truths, maybe counterintuitive truths, that in light of our culture might seem like lies, theological lies. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. As you know, the book of John is written so that people might believe, and by believing in his name you might have eternal life. And for those who believe, it's written so that you might continue to believe. And everything in this book, the Gospel of John, the good news of Jesus Christ according to the Apostle John, is about faith in Christ Jesus. And he's fully God and fully man. Truly God, truly man. The risen Savior. And he starts off by organizing everything around those seven I am statements, doesn't he? Right? I am the bread of life, John 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. I am the door to the sheep, John 10. I'm the good shepherd, John 10. I'm the resurrection and the life, John 11. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. And then John 15, I'm the vine. Everything swirling around those seven I am statements, hearkening back to Exodus chapter 3 where God says to Moses, I am that I am. So this gospel is, is written so that people might believe. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to see the Lord Jesus Christ preaching to a sinner so that he might believe. And I want you to see, number one, how great Jesus is when he preaches. He is a friend of sinners, but Jesus doesn't say, friendship evangelism, I'll only live my life in front of people. No, but he loves them enough to tell them the truth. We can't live a perfect life when it comes to friendship evangelism, and the only one who could, Jesus, he even preached. So I want you to see Jesus in action and you'll say, there's nobody like him. Your favorite evangelist won't be Adoniram Judson anymore or Mary Slessor. You'll think Jesus is the greatest evangelist who ever lived. And also as you watch Jesus, I think you'll be able to pick up some truths that will help you evangelize. As you know, friends, every person in your life who doesn't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when they die, they'll go straight to hell. Your mom, your dad, your brothers, sisters, friends, they'll all die without Christ. 
unless they hear the gospel and God saves. And so we need to be good evangelists. I mean, here at this Master's College, master, sorry, I knew I was going to do that. Just get that out of my system. My phone default goes to TMC, not TMU, so it still auto-corrects to that. Every person you know needs to hear the gospel. And so you'll watch Jesus in John 3 and you think, that's right, that's exactly how you evangelize. So let me give you for an outline today counterintuitive truths about Jesus and his evangelistic method. Counterintuitive truths. I think I have six of them at our home church, Josh knows, because I'm his pastor as well. I don't usually give the number because then if I give you five or six or seven when I'm supposed to give you eight, then you, you want to know what they are. So how about today, several counterintuitive truths about Jesus, and it will help you evangelize. Number one, religion, instead of saving a person, damns them. Counterintuitive truth, number one, instead of religion saving people, it damns them. And we live in a culture where people are religious. And here's how we talk today. Well, I'm very spiritual. What would Jesus say to such a person? John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to him, Jesus, by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Of course we know Nicodemus was religious, and he was a a Pharisee, and he was, uh, in front of other people, very righteous. I just got back from Israel, and I would encourage you all to go, if you have that opportunity, to go to Ibex, and you walk around and see all these religious people. I want you to know I probably met 18 Moseses in the last two weeks. Jesus is going to talk to this man because he loves him, and he cares for him, and he realizes religion can't save. You know, it's climbing, climbing a rope up to heaven made of a ladder of sand, but at the top, there's a noose there. It's going to kill you. And so Jesus talks to this man who's not a liberal. He's very orthodox. He's very conservative. He's a Bible believer. And the interesting thing in the Gospels, it seems like the Gospels make the people that are the hardest to save humanly, those farthest away, those seemingly not needing God at all, they're the religious ones. They're the self-righteous ones. They're not the unrighteous ones. When people realize they're unrighteous and it's a a prostitute or it's an adulterer or a tax collector, Jesus is very kind to them. But when he meets someone like this, he lays down the law. It is not those who are well who need a physician, Jesus said in Luke 5, but those who are what? Sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And people who are around a religion long enough, it's like an inoculation against salvation. Because they talk the talk. They they have words that they use. They do good things. They have religious lingo. John Gershner said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. I met someone in the last two weeks, very, very successful, at the highest ranks of success. And I said, friend, your problem isn't unrighteousness, although that's a problem, it's self-righteousness. Thinking your own righteousness is good enough. 
Spurgeon said, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And that's exactly what religion does. I don't mean the religion of James 1 where you take care of widows and orphans. I'm talking about the structure of thinking and works that make you realize, you know what, I'm better than other people because I do these religious things. I have more religion or righteousness than you do because I do these religious things. But Romans 2.13 says it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now here's the wild thing. Why can't religion save you? Well, let's take a look at the passage. Chapter 2 gives us interesting insight. Of course, the chapter divisions weren't there in the original, and sometimes we forget chapter 2 ends with the beginning of chapter 3. I know that's a dumb moment, but check it out. Verse 23 of chapter 2. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Mark this, verse 25. And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Now there was a man. He knew what was in a man, and now he knows Nicodemus. And the problem is you can do all these external things, and you can get baptized and catechized, and you can get... um, consecrated and you can get irrigated and you can get all these other kind of things but God knows your heart and on the inside we know we've been tainted by Adam's fall and we are desperately wicked and we are sinful and how does Romans describe us helpless ungodly enemies as unbelievers that's what we are and we need a savior And so Jesus can look through all the the external religiosity and good works and he sees the heart and he knows the heart needs redemption. And interestingly, look at verse 2 again. This is what the man did not say. Uh, False teacher, we know that you're from Satan and you can't do anything that you say. Some people said to Jesus, you've got a demon This man didn't say that. He intellectually knew Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus came from God. Jesus could turn water into wine. He intellectually knows all this, but that's not enough. Intellect isn't enough. Ascent isn't enough. What is enough? The passage will tell us shortly. Demons believe that God is one. They shudder. Religion can't save. If religion could save, why send Jesus? Counterintuitive truth number two. Not only will religion damn you, what you're commanded to do before God, you can't do. That seems weird. What God commands you to do, you can't do. What you need, you can't accomplish. You need a new you, but you can't make a new you. Does Jesus ever command people to do something they can't do? Answer, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, you don't need more religious training. You don't need more intellect. You don't need more data. You don't need more facts. You think I'm some religious teacher? Fine, you need to see me as a savior. And isn't this wonderful about the Lord Jesus? 
He's not answering the question of Nicodemus. He's answering the thoughts that were in Nicodemus's mind that no one knew except the creator of the universe, Jesus. George Whitfield preached John chapter 3, verse 3, not 500 times, not 1,000 times, not 1,500 times, but 2,000 times. And they said to Whitfield, why do you keep preaching you must be born again sermon so many times? Answer, because you must be born again. You must be born again. Just a quick side note. Uh, I was married in 1989 to Kim, and uh, she was the love of my life. And one day I got mad, and I just took the dresser, and it was made, uh, Ikea made it. The great thing about Ikea, it's cheap. The bad thing about Ikea, when you act like a little spoiled brat in front of your wife and slam down the dresser on the ground, it shatters into a thousand pieces. And she looked at me, I'll never forget that look. And the thing is, you know, if you have anger problems, you go have anger management counseling. But what if you are the problem? And looking back at it, I didn't have an anger problem, I was the problem. So how do I get a new me? How, how does that happen? Counseling, therapy, psychotropic drugs? I need a new me. How can I do that? What is needed, I can't do. And Jesus said to him, you must be born again. You need a new you. The Bible teaches those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's nothing we can do. We need a transformation from the inside out. We need to be made alive, and we can't do it. God must do it. Of course, we know Titus chapter 3. He saved us not because of works we have done in righteousness. So as you're evangelizing and people are religious in their talk, we, we still talk to them about the Lord and Savior Jesus. And when we're commanding them to do things, I don't have any problem in telling people, you must be born again, even though I know they can't do it. More on that later, counterintuitive truth number three. Religion damns. People need a Savior. They can't save themselves. And now number three, don't be surprised if people find Christianity Ludicrous or strange. It sounds weird to unbelievers. It did to Nicodemus. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Or can he? No, he can't. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. R.C. Sproul said, Nicodemus basically said, what are you talking about? This is incredulous. This is odd. This is strange. I mean, when I hear the gospel, I think, oh, like the songs we were singing today, just good theology, Christ-centered, the last Adam. I thought, amen. I might even have a cross around my neck and sing sentimental hymns about the old rugged cross. But you talk to someone who's an unbeliever about Jesus about a man that they've never met, along with 20,000 other Jews who were crucified in Palestine. If you think about this one Jew and believe he's the eternal God, that he can forgive sins, he can walk on water, he raised himself from the dead, if you trust in him and for salvation, you can go to heaven. That sounds wonderful to us, but to the unbeliever and to Nicodemus, that was weird. One of my favorite old preachers was preaching in a lecture about substitutionary atonement, propitiation, blood sacrifice, the wages of sin is death, and a guy yelled out, that's primitive and obscene. And R.C. Sproul said, that's exactly right. Repeat that, please. And the guy said, that's primitive and obscene. 
And Sproul said, I particularly like your choice of words because that's exactly what it is, primitive and obscene. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us, to obey and save people, it's the power of God. You're preaching the gospel to people and they go, like the people back in the Old Testament, in the New Testament in the old days, hey, Jesus can't even save himself, he can save me. Whenever you do it, Master's University Chapel, you have to quote the president one time, so here we go. <laughs> By the way, my poor family, uh, on Kim, my wife is named Kim, she had John MacArthur for a pastor for 15 years. And then she moved to New England with me, and now she has me for a pastor. But my kids, on the other hand, they've had me as a pastor for their whole life, and now they have John MacArthur for the pastor. Works out all right. <laughs> MacArthur, that one man could die on a piece of wood on a nondescript hill in a nondescript part of the world and thereby determine the destiny of every person who has ever lived seems stupid. But we keep giving them the good news. What the people want, we don't give that. We give them the gospel, whether they think it's interesting, shameful. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is he talking about? Water baptism? Of course not. He's talking to a Jew, right? Nicodemus, the teacher. And what would he talk to this Jewish teacher about? Well, he knew the Old Testament Nicodemus did, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's talking to this man in, New in Old Testament language. Here's the passage. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it. Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Nicodemus, you need to be cleansed. And what kind of cleansing do you need? On the inside, a spiritual cleansing. Something you can't do, but that's what you need. You can't save yourself. You can't manufacture righteousness from a sinful body. Look at verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Adam loves Pittsburgh. Probably for the Pittsburgh Steelers. But they also have steel factories there. And I should have probably asked Adam at breakfast this morning if steel factories in Pittsburgh produce cotton balls. Because the answer would be no. Steel factories make steel. And wicked sinful hearts multiply idols. So if you have to try to make yourself better and amend yourself and, and make yourself penitent enough, sinners only make more sin. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Ethiopians can't change their skin or leopard their spots. And so the whole time when I preach to people and I evangelize people, I realize I'm preaching to dead men walking, but I've been told to give them the gospel. And similarly, as Jesus sees the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus has been there for four days, and Lazarus, according to the King James Version, does what? He stinketh. And Jesus says to Lazarus, arise. That's a great picture of the gospel where through the preaching of the gospel we say to dead people, arise, based on the work of Christ Jesus and that's exactly what happens. Now Jesus changes the tense in verse seven to plural for everyone. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born 
again. That's each and every person. And by the way, it's hard to evangelize people if you're not a Christian. I would imagine most of you are, but if you're not a Christian, you must be born again. Number four, counterintuitive truth number four. Oh, this only gets better. God is in control of your salvation. Wait a second, you just told me that I have to be born again. Now how can God be in charge? How can I be responsible and have a duty and now God's sovereign over this? Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes. You can't control the wind. And you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's Jesus' point? Wind is sovereign. The Spirit is sovereign. The word for spirit and wind is the exact same. Pneuma, panuma. Pneumatic drill, pneumatology. And the wind does whatever it wants. It's sovereign and so does the Spirit of God. True or false? God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. True? I hope you said true because it's from Exodus and Romans 9. True or false? Jesus said, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. True. John chapter 6. We love the passage in Matthew 11, come unto me all who are, all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. You know the verses just before that? Here it is. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27. Spurgeon said, I hope that my master will lay hold of some of them and say, you are mine and you shall be mine. I claim you for myself. My hope arises out of the freeness of grace, not from the freedom of the will. If you're hoping that people will exercise their own freedom to save themselves, it'll never happen. Adam really fell, and we and Adam fell. So the hope of salvation, the trust of salvation, the longing for salvation has to do with the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit. You're forced to throw yourself on the mercy of God. Nicodemus answered and said to him, verse 9, how can these things be? Oh, you'd hate to be on the receiving end of this one, verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? You ought to. The Old Testament taught this. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven. By the way, this is a good verse for any kind of ludicrous book that says they've gone to heaven and back and want to make a dollar or two on it. By the way, Lazarus so missed out on a golden opportunity to make a lot of money, didn't he? Heaven's for real, Lazarus part two. Okay, I told my wife I was going to be good today, so let's just get back to it. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Counterintuitive truth number five. Not only will religion damn you and you need a new you, but you can't do it. It sounds weird to people. God controls your salvation. But now number five, the response to the gospel is believe, not do. 
The response to the gospel is believe, not do. Okay, so I have to be born again, and God's in control of my salvation. Of course, we know with progressive revelation, Jesus dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. What's my response to that? Is it to crawl up on my knees on the Scala Sancta in Rome? Remember the supposed steps where Jesus uh, was uh, climbing up and Pilate was there and now the angel transports them to Rome allegedly. There's 28 steps and you go up on your knees. I was just on those stairs not long ago and I thought, well, I'll, I'll go up on those but my knee kills me. I'm 57 years old and I'm, I, it was blocked and I thought, you know, there, I need a fast pass because all the lanes up these stairs are, are you know, full. What if I could get people out of purgatory by doing something? Wouldn't I do it? Luther realized as I go up these 28 steps and I can get people out of purgatory at every step, too bad my mom and dad are alive. If only my mom and dad were dead, I could be getting them out of purgatory, so I guess I have to use all this to get grandpa out of hell slash purgatory. How do you respond to the gospel? Verse 14, it's faith. Sola fide. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, he's talking to this man named Nicodemus, this Old Testament teacher. Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. Let's turn there and find out. I think you're going to be wonderfully shocked. Numbers chapter 21, please. The context is Nicodemus. You've got to believe. He's talking about Moses lifted up a serpent. The Son of Man must be lifted up. That is, of course, crucifixion, as John 8 would tell us. And we go to Numbers chapter 21, one of my favorite passages in all of the book of Numbers. How do you describe the book of Numbers? If we were going to think about an Old Testament class and you wanted to just give a description of Numbers, here's what I learned from a man uh, at sem in seminary. The book of Numbers. In the desert, there's a lot of sand, and God has a lot of time. There you go. That's the book. There's a lot of sand and a lot of time in the desert. We come to Numbers 21. Jesus is referring to this passage. I mean, this is the only Bible Jesus has, right? The New Testament hasn't been written. And so he, he talks to the teacher of Israel about Numbers 21 to illustrate this point. What happened in Moses' day is going to happen for the Lord Jesus. Verse 4 of Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then Yahweh sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that the many people of Israel died. I mean, I would hate to get bit by any kind of snake, let alone a poisonous snake, let alone a poisonous snake sovereignly sent by God to kill me. Do you think Israel was now going to pay attention? That's kind of an attention grabber if you ask me. And this interesting language here, fiery serpents, some people think it's uh, fiery like red. Red looks uh, like fire, fire looks red, or some people think it's fiery like, ow! I was riding my bicycle, I like to ride a road bicycle, and I was riding, and uh, 
Sometimes, you know, bees will, will hit me in the chest and drop down and sting me in the legs, or sometimes they'll get in my helmet and sting me. But this was the worst of all time. I'm riding, I could see the thing going in slow motion, slow motion, slow motion, slow motion, slow motion, into my mouth, and the thing is stinging me, this hornet, inside of my mouth. I spit it out really quickly, and I thought, I should not have done that. I should have thought through this, and I should have just ground it down with my teeth just to punish it and just kill it with my mouth. <laughs> Teach that thing, vengeance is mine. <laughs> Man, it was burning, it was swelling. It wasn't because my mouth was red, it because it was on fire. These fiery serpents were biting people, stinging them, not blessing. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. They knew God heard Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. It's almost like, I don't want any more quail, God gives more quail. I don't want any more snakes, God gives them the snake. And just imagine, people are over there dying and burning and inflammation. I don't really like snakes, but this particular snake, they needed to like. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, verse 9, and if the serpent bit anyone, or a serpent, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the response to the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ lives a perfect life as the last Adam. He dies on the cross, he's raised from the dead, and what's the response? Good works, baptize people. No, the response is faith. And you'll see that throughout the Old Testament. The just shall live by faith. You'll see that with Abraham. Faith. You'll see that with Naaman the Syrian. And he dunks himself into the Jordan River seven times. Faith. And here, what do they have to do? They take God at his word and they look to this serpent. Faith is the response to the good work of God. This reminds me of Isaiah 45. Look to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Just, just look at this snake. That sounds weird enough. Now, if it was me, uh, how would I tend to a snake bite? Uh, I have these books about bushcraft and how you spend the night in the Grand Canyon and, you know, survival man and all this stuff. And my wife knows I'll never get out of my easy chair. <laughs> and the other day I bought one of those little uh, suction cup things where you make a, if you've got a snake bite, you make a little cut around it and then suck out the poison, you know. That's kind of what I would do. I did read these following protocols if you ever get bit by a poisonous snake. Have the victim lie down with an affected limb lower than the heart. Remove any rings, bracelets, boots, or restricting items. It will swell. Wash the bite with soap and water if available. Do not cut the bite. Do not apply a tourniquet. Do not suck out the venom by your mouth. And by the way, this is California, so let me give you a few holistic, naturalistic kind of... Um, Use aloe vera leaves, <laughs> some echinacea, or as we say in New England, Josh, echinacea. 
I moved to New England, and, I, and, and the guy got up to read the Bible, and he said, uh, uh, the Lord Jesus said, I am the Alpha and Omega. <laughs> I did what you did, but nobody else did it. And I thought, I'm going to get fired. It's my first day as a pastor. I'm laughing at scripture reading. <laughs> Put some echinacea on your leg. Fresh red grapes you could use. Drink fresh pineapple. But you know what's weirder? than holistic things, what's weirder than snake bite kits. See that snake over there? Just look at it. Look. That's all you have to do is look. Well, wait a second. I mean, maybe a little incense, please. Some Latin, Dominus Sanctus Spiritu. I mean, something. Do I, do I kneel for a while? Do I, do I do something before? Is there something antecedently for me to do? And by the way, did not Israel say or hear from God, snakes are not clean, they're unclean. So you mean to tell me I will be physically clean if I looked at an unclean thing up on a pole? And it shouldn't take you very long to start processing. Moses lifted up, son of man lifted up, unclean thing on a pole, Jesus the clean one, Jesus the holy one, Jesus the blameless one, treated as if he's unclean up on a pole. What good does looking at a bronze snake do? God wants them to personally trust him and respond to him. You don't have to look twice, but you've got to look. Your parents can't look for you. You have to look. This is a supernatural remedy for an issue that can only be solved supernaturally. The remedy, as Lewis Johnson said, is supernatural because the brazen serpent can't heal. But the Lord Jesus Christ can, and now let's go back to John and finish the message. Jesus takes Nicodemus to this Old Testament passage. And now we see the connection. Let's read it again, and it should come alive with color. Why do we study the Old Testament? For lots of reasons, but it'll help you understand the new. And vice versa. John 3, 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's the language of crucifixion. That whoever, what? I could say, to use the Old Testament language, looks, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Notice the similarities. Here's a similarity. God divides both ways. This is a plan of God. This is a sovereignty of God, devising plan of salvation. There's another similarity. Both are very unlikely ways to cure someone. Look at a snake and look to the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems unlikely, but that is prescribed by God. And both of them, and here's the main point of the passage, it is by faith and faith alone. You look to the serpent, you look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're evangelizing your friends and your family, you tell them about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that's greater than their guilt, to use Heidelberg Catechism uh, guilt, grace, and gratitude. But you tell them the response is to believe. There are no antecedent requirements except faith. The just shall live by faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Samson. And anyone can do that. Man or woman. Jew or Gentile. 
a look to the Lord Jesus Christ is the remedy for sin. No human remedy. No self-reformation. No, you know, i got to clean up my act before I come to Christ. I've got to buy some kind of relic uh, to, to look at and some beads to use. In New Zealand, uh, there was a revival going on and a tent preacher. And uh, there's a young man, he knew he was sinful and he needed relief. And so he goes to the tent meeting and they were taking the tent down. Revival was over. The young man said to the man taking down the tent who happened to be the preacher, Mr. Wooten, what must I do to be saved? The preacher looked and he said, you're too late. What must I do to be saved? You're too late. He began to work back on the tent pegs. Too late, my friend, too late. Surely it's not too late because the meetings are over. Yes, my friend, it's too late. You want to know what you must do to be saved, and I tell you, you're hundreds of years too late. The work of salvation is done, finished. It was finished on the cross. Jesus said so with the last breath that he drew. What more do you want? And then it dawned on the man that the only response is faith. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And then final counterintuitive truth, number six, is God loves sinners in spite of their sin. This is amazing. God loves sinners. We hear about the love of God all the time, but now we come to that very famous verse, and let me read it in verse 16 with a little Greek inflection. For God loved the world this way, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, all who believe in him, should not perish but have eternal life. God is not required to love anyone. He's not required to save anyone. He's not required to do anything, but God is a, a God who, who loves. He loves sinners. God demonstrates, makes conspicuous that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Died for us. My all-time favorite verse about love is found in Hosea 14.4. I will love them freely. God freely loves sinners. There's, there's no constraint. There's no object of, of affection that does something for the love. It's in spite of. I always uh, uh, ask grooms uh, in front of their brides-to-be in premarital counseling, could you tell me, young man or older man, why you picked your wife? Like four things, please. And they'll say things like, she's godly. Um, she loves kids. And then I'll say, you know, by the way, you can say she's beautiful because it's not like only a spiritual answer. Oh, she's pretty. One guy said, she's a five-point Calvinist. <laughs> That's true. I thought, oh. <laughs> five-point Calvinist. And I said, friend. And by the way, the, you know, it's just a sweet thing. And then I say to myself, that's the right thing to do for us to pick. I, I get it. We pick because of. But God doesn't do that. God picks in spite of. Because we're sinners and we're enemies and we're, we're helpless and we're ungodly. And God loves us anyway. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we're yet what? Sinners. Christ died for us. This is amazing. I would challenge you never read verse 16 without reading 14 and 15 first. There's a reason why it starts with four. 
That's amazing. God loves humankind. God would love me. I think of the parable of the lost sons and that father sees that son and he runs and he, he, he embraces him and he kisses him and he gives him all that love even though he never deserved any of it. I asked my wife to marry me on May 6th, 1989. Whew. <laughs> Sorry, hon. She's live streaming. May 6th. We were married on June 6th, 1989. That's not prescriptive. That's descriptive. <laughs> and one of the reasons, there's only one, but one of the reasons is because I thought if she gets to know me, she'll never marry me. You're laughing, but I'm, not, I'm telling you the truth. I'm wicked, I'm awful, I covet, I lust, I'm envious, I'm self-righteous, I'm unrighteous. So let's get the thing on the road and get it done till death do you part. Then she learns after. <laughs> then, then she's stuck 29 years later. There are some things she'll never know about me because I won't tell anybody I'm too ashamed. But God of the universe knew everything I ever thought, did, or will do. I mean, all those things in the skeletons of your closet. And because of the work of Christ, the Spirit of God and the Father, he says, I love sinners anyway. I don't love because of you. I love in spite of you because I'm a loving God. That's good news for people to hear today when you have friends who have done the most atrocious, awful things. And could God forgive them? The answer is yes, because God loves sinners. That's amazing to think, loved by God. Sometimes when I was younger, I thought, could I ever get anybody to love me? What about my mom? How did she meet my dad? And will I ever meet someone? Will everyone ever love me? I'm thinking the God of the universe loves me. He's adopted me as his son. Are you, if you're a lady, as a daughter? By what I've done? No, I realized there was nothing in me. God was in control of everything. I tried to save myself by religious and spirituality, and all I did was look. I looked at this unclean thing, treated as if unclean, although he was holy and blameless, and God said, son. That's amazing. No wonder 1 Corinthians says, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. God loves sinners. So I know you have friends. I know you have relatives that need to hear the gospel. It's good news. I know they need to be convicted of their sin first and you give them the law and then the gospel. But friends, it's almost like you have an in to preach the gospel because you go to a Christian university. And I've watched Luke do this. He well, where do you go to school? The master's university, and this is why I go, and you lead into the gospel. Faith comes by hearing a message about Christ Jesus, yes? It's time to preach the gospel, not because our salvation depends on it, but because God saves people through the preaching of the gospel. And for you who don't preach the gospel regularly, I could do two things. First thing I could do is I could guilt you. When's the last time you preached the gospel? Or I could do this. Even though I fail in preaching the gospel regularly, Jesus never failed preaching the gospel. And we saw it today in Luke, excuse me, in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. And when God sees his son or daughter who's weak in evangelism, he sees us through the lens and the perfect righteousness of Jesus, the great evangelist. 
And so since that true is true, now I can evangelize out of response to God of love and not duty or else. If you go to Germany, Verden, Germany, you'll see a little lamb carved up on an old church there. And if you would just say, why is that up there? There was a man working up on the scaffold. He fell to a sure death, but landed on a little lamb. And that lamb that was eating those little tufts of grass was crushed to death. And that man said, you know, in gratitude, I'm going to carve a memorial lamb to celebrate deliverance by the lamb. That's good news, isn't it? Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for our time and your word. It's amazing to think that later in the Gospel of John, Nicodemus is right there trying to get the Lord Jesus' body. I would imagine we'll see him in heaven, all based on the perfect work through the preaching of the Gospel. Help these dear students to be thankful for their salvation and to preach good news to others. In his name we pray, amen.